Oh, good evening, everyone. Nice to be here again. A um, couple of weeks ago, Stuart uh, said to me, uh, as we were leaving church in the morning, he, did, he just started this thinking about the sermon series, Jesus Is. And he asked the congregation to, uh, over morning tea, discuss, who do you think Jesus is? So he cornered me at the door and says, well, who do you think Jesus is? And I hadn't thought about it. So I said, oh, I think he's a forgiver of sins. That's what I think. And then he told me, well, you're preaching in a couple of weeks. Would you like to preach on that? Hmm, okay. <laughs> so here I am. Um, I think it's true that Jesus is the great forgiver. And that's why I want to look at this passage this morning. And it just so happens that this is the one that they looked in, uh, in kids' church this morning. So those that were there should know all the answers, shouldn't they, when they ask the really hard questions. And their teachers too. Um, why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, help us to understand your word this morning as we come afresh to this passage, see what it means, and to see what we can take home from it and to know more about you and your love for us. Amen. Well, it's supposed to be storm season, uh, but not many storms. You know, you look at the weather and it says, perhaps a chance of a thunderstorm in the afternoon. And you, you say, oh, I won't hose because, you know, the storm's going to come. Nothing. So we're waiting. But we do have some thunderstorms around, and I guess before February finishes at least we'll, we'll find a few. There was a beauty a couple of weeks ago, and I don't think it struck Oran Park or where I live, Spring Farm, but it seemed to be farther south, a lot of sheet lightning all over the place. And uh, thunderstorms are pretty scary when they're like that. I don't know if you've ever been struck by lightning or lightning has been near you, but you know the, the power of a thunderstorm. A couple of years ago I was talking to a friend who said that he was hiking with a mate in the snowy mountains above the tree line. And there was a storm brewing in the distance. And suddenly his friend's hair, which was fairly long, stood straight up. And he had an A-frame backpack on, it was the old one. And uh, the, 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 the metal in the backpack glowed an eerie blue. Uh, now, I, a little bit of research on that and found out that's called St Elmo's Fire. You may have heard of that. I think there was uh, a movie about that at some stage. Um, it means that lightning is imminent. And the best thing to do, especially if you're out in the bush, or actually where there's no trees, hit the ground. Um, you see that phenomenon too sometimes in ships. Uh, the lightning is about to strike and the mast lights up, an eerie blue or a yellow, a green colour. And it means get to cover. Uh, the air is charged with electricity. Now, the reading we're looking at today is a charged situation. There's electricity in the air even before the paralysed man is healed. And we want to see what that is about. What is the interpersonal fire that's going on in that house in Capernaum when Jesus is speaking? Now let's go through that passage again and have a look at verses 1 and 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. and They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. I think the home was probably that of Jesus, uh, Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, earlier in that chapter, we read that um, uh, he was healing many in Peter's mother-in-law's house. And then he says later on, beginning of chapter 2, and he came home again to Capernaum. And I believe the home was Peter's mother-in-law's house. And so Jesus is there preaching. And there are people there who are curious. There's some very bright-eyed disciples who are there wondering you know, what Jesus is about to say. Uh, crowds attract crowds, so you're getting an air of expectancy about what Jesus is about to do. 
and uh, some very important people are beginning to turn up, which made the rest of them quite edgy and nervous. Uh, pretty soon it was impossible to get in the door. So outside there was just dust and noise and pushing and shoving as more and more people tried to get in. Yet with all this great crushing energy, there are two dominating presences in that room, in that situation. Uh, the first presence is that of the Pharisees, scribes and the Sadducees. In other words, the religious leaders of the time. Uh, they weren't there for a clergy conference. They were there to get some sort of uh, investigative committee organised to just check out this new preacher, find out what he was on about and maybe dig up some dirt on him. And although there was standing room only, we're told in one of the Gospels that uh, they were sitting. They weren't standing with the others. They were just sitting, waiting for Jesus to slip up. So the crowd sensed this, and that's why there was this air of expectancy. The other presence in the room, of course, was Jesus. And he was teaching the disciples and teaching the crowd. It says he was teaching the word to them, probably the word about the kingdom of God, uh, repent and believe. That was his main message throughout his ministry. Uh, put your trust in me and the fact that I'm about to die for you. And I, felt, I think the crowd felt that sort of tension. They sensed that something was about to happen. And in the parallel passage in Luke, Luke tells us that the power was in the room to heal. So there was a, there was a, a crackling expectancy before the disturbance started. And that disturbance, of course, was the man being lowered down through the roof. So let's pick up the story. Some men came bringing to him a paralysed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Four men come in with a stretcher. They approach the fringe of the crowd. There are a few attempts to get through, but they're always pushed back. Now, somehow they get on the roof. There may have been stairs leading up to the roof. They may have gone to another house and come across. We don't know. But needless to say, uh, they finally got their friend on the top of the roof with Jesus below. Well, that was the first part of the plan. I don't know if they had a second at all. But eventually one of them must have said, well, we're here. We better start digging now, they weren't just digging through a, a, a thatched hut. Uh, Palestine houses were quite firm. Uh, when you build a house, the stone walls went up. Then you laid beams of timber across on top of the walls, about two metres apart. On top of that, you would put bushes, uh, thorns, uh, cut trees, uh, any other rubbish you might have, press that down. And on top of that, you put 30 centimetres of mud, which you then stomped on. So it's fairly thick. So you've got about 60 centimetres of roof. And they start digging. Now, I don't think they dug with tools. I don't think they came with a rope. I don't think they came with uh, anything prepared. They just had to uh, act on what was in front of them. These men decided to dig. Now, for those below, I guess the first inclination was that they heard things and then they began to feel things as debris started to come down. Hearing the exclamation of the construction workers would have been echoed by the exclamation and probably colourful exclamation of those below. Remember, Peter's in this house and it's his mother-in-law's house, so he's, he's probably a bit worried about what's happening at the top there. 
Uh, eventually light streams through the room of course and the opening is big enough for a man words are exchanged between those above and those below and then somehow someone must have got hold of a rope or something the man is lowered down what a scene it makes a great story for our children which is the one they had this morning sun shining through the hole in the roof the four men looking down satisfied determined in stark contrast to the Pharisees below looking very stern and grim and brushing themselves off in the midst of all this Jesus the prince of life and the poor paralytic knowing or thinking what's going on here let's spend a moment looking at the friends Uh, here's a picture of the friends I don't know if they had the rope however how would you characterize these guys what sort of qualities did they have boys do you know what, what would you say made them do this? They have the rope, yeah. But what inequalities might they have had? I've lost Beck. She was going to answer. Oh, there she is. Beck, what were they like? What do you think? And someone might need to tell me that answer. They were faithful, weren't they? That's right. And they were determined. They were very forceful. They weren't going to give up. Nothing was going to get in their way. Uh, They they were very fond of their friend too. Uh, We don't know if he was a friend or he could have been a family member. And they were bringing him to Jesus because they knew that Jesus was the solution to their particular problem. Uh, This paralytic was a very rich man. Not because he had lots of money, but because he had friends. People spend thousands of dollars trying to buy friends today and uh, often our, our, uh, our youth spend a lot of time on uh, social media trying to buy friends. Uh, but this man had great friends who cared for him. And the Bible writers highlight the friends as being faithful and faith-filled. But there's another characteristic the friends had and that was their faith. Very strong faith, wasn't it? Uh, there's nothing that would have stopped them from going to this extreme to get their friend to see Jesus. A wavering faith might have given up. They might have said, it's just too hard. The thickness is too much. It wasn't a vague, passive faith. It wasn't a faith that many say, yeah, I believe in God, but there's no action involved. This was an active faith. It was persistent. They got their friend on the stretcher, they brought him to Jesus, and nothing was going to stop them getting them to him. They weren't politically correct. They didn't need a committee. They didn't sit on the roof and weigh out the pros and the cons of whether they should do it or not. They just got to work, and Jesus applauds this type of action. Later on in Mark's gospel, uh, sorry, Matthew's gospel, Jesus says this, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men will lay hold of it. So when these four tore into the roof, they took the kingdom by force. Their faith was determined, forceful and creative. So when it means, when people say, put your faith in Jesus, which we often ask those who are here to do in church, what does it look like? Well, you just have to look at this story to see what faith looks like. It's great, isn't it? When you see the action that these men took, 
they realise that Jesus is the only one who can meet our deepest needs. And that's why we're here today as a church. We've come because we realise that Jesus meets our deepest needs. If he didn't meet our needs, we wouldn't be here. We'd be somewhere else, maybe down playing pokies, thinking money might meet our needs, something like that. If you've invited a friend tonight, you've been a very faithful friend too because you've suggested that they come to have their deepest needs met too, which is great news. You see, I think in this story, and it's wonderful the way uh, the writer does this, is he turns the tables. The real paralytic in this story is not the man on the mat. The real paralytic or paralytics are the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. In stark contrast to the faith and activity of the friends, the scribes and the Pharisees just sit there. Where they should have been reaching up and pulling the man down, they just sat. Instead of love, there's indifference, like a couldn't care less attitude. Instead of faith, they criticised. Of course, Jesus sees the scene really clearly in all his clarity. And with a paralytic before him, Jesus, as he often does, decides to make a point. Uh, if you want to see Jesus making points, just read through John's Gospel. Jesus contrasts um, his way of actions with the Pharisees' way of actions all the way through that. There are confrontation points. And here in Mark's Gospel is that first confrontation point where Jesus actually attacks what the Pharisees are doing and what they're saying. And what Jesus says now is so shocking, it's like lightning hitting the room. And I think it's shocking for two reasons. Because he says to the paralysed man, my son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? To have that said to you. It's such an irrelevant statement for that paralysed man. He's come to Jesus hoping to be able to walk away. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. I bet he looked at his friends and said, what a waste of time this is, boys. Take me home. I, I came for this need and now it's gone. But you see, Jesus sees through the desperate need that that man had to an even greater need. He knows what he's talking about because he is the son of God. He sees the shriveled appendages of the man he sees a man who perhaps thinks he's a burden to others because of his inability to walk. He sees a man who seems to be captured, a man prisoner in his own body. But through it all, Jesus penetrates to the heart of the matter, to what really counted in that room. That is the forgiveness of sins. I saw a cartoon when I was looking at um, uh, putting this talk together and it was a picture of four men lowering a crowd into the room and the paralysed man walking away. And I thought, yes, that's the picture, isn't it? They're all, they're all the paralysed people. All those people in the room are just like that man because their greatest need is the forgiveness of sins. So that's the first thing we see. Uh, the paralysed man senses that uh, Jesus hasn't really met his need, but Jesus says, yes, I have. The second thing that Jesus' statement is so shocking is the reason he gives about himself. We see that in these verses here. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Uh, they know from their Old Testament readings that only God can forgive sins. They've read enough of the Bible to know that uh, in Joseph's time, when Joseph was 
uh, with Potiphar's wife. And Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. Uh, Joseph says to her, how can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? He knows that he's wronging Potiphar if he, if he has this affair, but he realises he's ultimately responsible to, to God the Father. And again, David uh, says in uh, Psalm 51, after his affair with Bathsheba, against you only, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Although he's committed murder, although he's committed adultery, again, it's just to God alone that he's responsible. And so only God can break that barrier and forgive sins. And this is a not-so-subtle statement that Jesus is God when Jesus says, I forgive your sins. Such colossal blasphemy deserved death. That was a punishment for saying something like this. But Jesus could see the thought in their faces. He could read their body language. And he knew everything that was going on in their hearts. And we see that in the next couple of verses. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralysed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat and walk? Now, I know what's easier to say. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Millions of dollars are spent each year on trying to find a cure for paralegia and quadriplegia. There's very little to show for it. Occasionally you get people who can walk a few metres but then have to sit down again. So it's far easier to say your sins are forgiven. But does anyone have the temerity to say to a paralysed man in front of them, stand up and walk? That's a pretty big deal. But look what Jesus does in these next couple of verses. Jesus says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man, that's a title that he gives himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat and go home. He got up, took up his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. With Jesus' words, the paralytic's bones straightened, the tendons felt taut and his flagging skin began to stretch and he strode out through the crowd that wouldn't let him in in the first place. For Jesus, it was a pretty easy thing to say, get up and walk. In creation, Jesus was there with the Spirit and the Father. He created the world. He created the universe. So for Jesus to say, get up and walk, is a pretty easy thing for, for God. But to say your sins are forgiven, well, that's pretty hard. Because to say that means that you've got to go through some pretty terrible things to say those words. And Jesus knew it was the hardest thing of all to say, my son, your sins are forgiven, because that meant his own death on a cross. Later in this gospel, Mark records Jesus' words when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays in the garden with his disciples. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Just the thought that he would die, uh, just the thought that awaits him makes him feel very, very scared. <clears throat> he goes on to say to his disciples, stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, but not what I will, but what you will. But we know that the cup of suffering wasn't removed. And what Jesus prayed for, that God's will be done, was done. 
and he died the lowest death of all, even death on a cross. Later on, Paul looks at this event and he sums it up in these words. He says it so succinctly. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was sinless for all of his 33 years. He knew no sin and he remained sinless. But for those three hours on Good Friday, all the sin of humanity was dumped on him, all the vile, all the corruption, all the rot, just so that we might be forgiven. Jesus took the tumult and the pain willingly upon himself so that he could say to that man and to you and I tonight, my son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. See, Jesus is the great forgiver, isn't he? He did the hardest thing that's ever been done in all humanity. It's easy for God to say, rise up and walk, but it's very hard for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, because he knows that in three years' time, the pain and the suffering has to go through for those words to be true. You know, the paralytic walked home that afternoon and he bore on his shoulder much more than his stretcher. He was clean. He had no guilt, had no bitterness, only release and forgiveness. Someday in the future, those newly restored limbs would wither and that body would take its last breath but there would remain in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life because he'd been forgiven and set free. Jesus can do anything he wants. He can heal with a word. But the greatest miracle, the only one that's eternal, is that he forgives sins. Has he said to you, your sins are forgiven? Has he said that to you? That can happen tonight if it hasn't happened to you already. doesn't matter how old you are. Sometimes we just need to take that into account and say, God, I am a sinner and I really need your forgiveness. Jesus has done the hard work on the cross. What is it you really need? Is it sleep? Is it money? Is it work? No, it's forgiveness. So what will you take home with you tonight? as you leave church. Hopefully these words will be ringing in your ear. My son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus forgives our sins. We thank you for the great lengths he went to to do that. Please help us, if we haven't done so already, to thank you and to come into that saving relationship with you. For Jesus' sake, amen.